Yesterday, I, I went to see um, Mrs. Sippet and, and to meet Mr. Sippet, and um, I, was, um, I was just struck by the, the faithfulness of these people that's so obvious, and they're totally new to me. But um, it's very clear hearing Mr. Sippet's wife and daughter speak of him and the man that he has been in this community, in this church specifically for years and years, that uh, there's a great testimony to, to the Lord's faithfulness and how he has lived his life. And um, I, didn't, I know a lot for a lot of Valley Hope people, you know, these people are unfamiliar to you, but they're part of us. And I'd ask you to be in prayer uh, as Mr. Sippet faces the end, uh, it seems, the end of, of his life. Um, this is our brother and sister who we love and care for. So please continue to, to be in prayer for them during this time. Um, this morning, we, we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. <clears throat> Somewhat appropriately, uh, considering the, the events of the, the past week, um, we are in the season of Lent, and if you are not accustomed to, to the usage of the church calendar for corporate spiritual formation and discipleship, uh, this is a, a designated season where we especially focus on uh, themes like repentance and life and death, the brevity of life, and uh, how we are called to, to live our lives before God uh, in repentance, that we might more closely be conformed to the image of Jesus. So over these next six Sundays as we move towards Easter, because that's where we're moving, as we're moving to the cross, um, we're going to be looking at some of the teachings of Jesus, parables and teachings that focus on these themes uh, of repentance and like today for forgiveness. So today we'll be in Matthew 18, starting at verse 15, and I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to, to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. 
and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had that mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we look to you as a God who forgives and has mercy and calls us to a life that is shaped by your own life. I pray, God, that our hearts would be soft and our ears would be open, that we would hear your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help me to speak that word and only your word. Shape us, God, to the image of your Son, to the praise of your name. Amen. Sin and forgiveness is what is in view here in Jesus' teaching. And there are two sets of instruction here. The, the first block that we, that we read was, what happens when you and I recognize that your brother or sister is in sin, and what do you do about that? Uh, how do you confront them or speak with them directly, one-to-one? What is the role of the community in dealing with the nature of sin? When that happens. And then Peter, jumping off of that topic, asks Jesus, What is his personal obligation for dealing with sin that is directly committed against him? And Jesus then answers and and gives this extended story. And Jesus here deals with some of the most uncomfortable things that I think Christians, especially uh, if if I could step on some toes, especially here in the South, have to deal with. In my, in my view, I think this is difficult anywhere, but in the South where uh, politeness is the rule and the appearance of, of charity and cheerfulness is the expectation. When Christians sin against one another, things become messy and difficult. I know I have seen this so many times in the church where Christians sin against one another, and there's, there's two moves that I've seen, and pretty much only two moves. One is to never talk about it, and to be in the same room together forever, everybody aware of what's happened, but not to talk about it. The other thing is to not talk about it by never being in the same room together. Either way, the most common approach to this is, let's never talk about this again. We'll do whatever needs to be done so that either we can be in the same room and ignore one another, or we can never have to be in the same room together, but let's, at all costs, never talk about this. Because this is difficult and often painful. Sin is painful. And a lot of people come to the Gospels and expect a sort of sappy, soft-edged Jesus of the 
puppies and unicorns. Just this sort of daydreamy uh, guy who sort of drifts through a warm, ultra-sweet version of the world. But Jesus, he does this all the time. He steps into the hard edges of life and is not afraid to very clearly give clear, hard instruction for those difficult places. The Christian life is a life lived together. I had... Uh, a student asked me in one of my New Testament classes, does the Bible say that you have to go to church to be a Christian? Which is, of course, the wrong way to ask this kind of question. It's, it's very common. And I, I can point to him passages in Hebrews where the author says, you know, don't forsake the gathering. He wants to know, though, the way he asks it is, is part of the formula, the recipe for becoming a Christian going to church, which is a, a very fine way to ask it if you want to hear, no, you don't have to go to church. Because how does Jesus save you? Of course, you, you place your trust in him, you put your faith in him, and he saves you, and it's by faith alone, through grace alone, that, that God saves his people. However... The Bible is very clear that you cannot be a Christian in isolation. There is no New Testament understanding of following Jesus where you live alone in your house, ideally in your prayer closet, by yourself, never in contact with anybody else. The New Testament Christian is always seen in the context of the community of believers, So the things that Jesus is talking about here are real-life things that we have, we are, and we will continue to deal with as a people together forever and ever. Amen. Because we are a people who will not be free of this thing until the day that Jesus' feet stand on the earth again. So as a people who wrestle with sin, acknowledge the damage of sin, and have seen the repercussions of painful, sinful interactions, what then should we do? And Jesus, his instruction centers around a couple of things, one of which is you don't do the thing where you never talk about it. That thing that feels the easiest, that thing that feels like the, the corner you want to run to. Let's never talk about a fence between one another. Let's never talk about how we might see our brother and sister living in sin. Jesus does not play that game. The first approach to sin is to name it, to talk about it. Because in so doing, Jesus says, the pathway to disarming and, and overcoming sin is laid out. Does that make sense? In both of these sections, when there is corporate sin and there's sin between two people, the solution necessarily involves going to one another and saying, look, you have sinned. It may be in the first telling, it's not even against you. You may just, because you care for and love your brother, are able to see like, man, I don't, I don't know what you're doing here. I see the way that you're you're, you're spending your money or the, who you're sleeping with or the way that you're talking. What's going on? And in the second section, in view is you being sinned against. And Jesus' instruction is clear. You must name sin. Name it for what it really is and the damage that it is doing and how it has hurt you and get into the messy, nitty-gritty of sin.
Now, Peter's question is especially relevant to those of us who have ever been sinned against. I, I would, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I am not the only person to have ever been sinned against in this room. And I'll go even further. I'm not pointing any fingers, but I would suggest I'm probably not the only person who has sinned against someone else. Now, if that is the case, then just bear with me because I'm going to be talking about only me for the next several minutes. (laughs) Peter asks a question because that's what Peter always does. He opens his mouth and he talks because somebody's got to talk and it might as well be Peter first and loudest. And Peter says, how many times must I forgive somebody? Is it seven times? And Peter here is, is actually doing a moderately good job for Peter in the Peter scale. Because the the rabbis have come up with a saying at this point that the the accepted number for forgiveness is like is three. You get three chances of forgiveness. And Peter here, he is more than doubling the three. Like, good job, Peter. Peter understands that forgiveness in God is is big and, and powerful. And he says, seven. And you can just imagine that perhaps Peter here is looking for a pat on the head, like Jesus is like, good job, man. And Jesus doesn't. Because so often Peter misses the mark and he does so here. And Jesus says, not seven, 77. Your translation might say 70 times seven. The, the better translation is, is 77 times. And if, and if that freaks you out, whether it's 490 or 77, you're, you're missing the point, just like Peter was missing the point. Jesus is saying... <clears throat> The number that you have in your head needs to be multiplied to a much larger degree. And he, he then takes this common format of parable telling where there's, there's a king and there's servants. And you're, you and I are to understand that God is in the role of king and we are in the role of servants. And the person in the parable, it's, it's said that he owes 10,000 talents. Now, if you are not up on ancient Mediterranean scales of money, 10,000 talents is, 10,000 is the largest Greek number for which there is a single word, 10,000, and a talent is the largest sum of money on the scale of money. What, what Jesus is saying is this guy owes like a billion dollars. That's, that's what he's saying. It's a massive debt. And he comes before the king, and the king is saying you and your family is going to be sold into slavery, which is a common way of repaying debt. This is how debt is repaid. And the servant pleads and says, please give me time. I can pay you back, which of course he can't. But he's asking for time and mercy. And at this moment, the parable takes a really sudden and unexpected turn. Because Jesus says, the king looks at him and says, your debt is forgiven. That's not, that is an unimaginable option. It wasn't on the table for anyone who's listening to this parable that the the king would not say, yes, I'll give you more time. That that would maybe expected mercy is when the king says, I'll give you a year. I'll give you two years. I'll give you five years to work this debt off. But the king in Jesus' parable says, this billion dollar debt, it's totally off your ledger. I forgive you. And then, of course, the, the insanity of what happens next is just contrasted by that extravagant mercy. Because the servant turns around and then has the opportunity 
to deal with somebody who has a debt to him that is a fraction of a fraction of what he is owed. Now, that person owes him 100 denarii, which, to be fair, is still a relatively significant amount of money, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. Denarii, roughly, is a day's wages. So translated and converting and stuff, five, maybe, maybe up to $60,000. Significant sum. And the, the servant cannot let it go. He literally cannot let this guy go because he's choking the life out of him. And he says, please just give me more time. And he says, absolutely not. Go into prison. You will be in slavery until you pay me back. And then, of course, what happens? The king is told of what's done. He comes and says, this is ridiculous. Do you not remember what I just did for you? You're getting thrown in to jail to be tortured until you've paid your debt. That's the, the imagery that often happens in these slave, these prison repayment scenarios. And Jesus says, the Father in heaven expects you to forgive. And those of you who do not forgive are in danger of this kind of judgment. And so here is God in the way that Jesus is telling the story of this sin and forgiveness. He is both radically forgiving unexpectedly, bountifully merciful. And he is also the God who will bring justice and judgment because of the failure to live up to the standard that he has set by his own character. And this is just such a Jesus story. This is, this is so the way that Jesus is. So unexpected in the way that he talks about God's mercy and kindness towards someone. And so radically holy. And, and Jesus will not let go of either sides of those natures of God that he is both unbelievably loving and gracious and yet will not sacrifice an ounce of his holiness to be that way. And Jesus says, you are called into the pathway of his character. You are called to follow him and be forgiving. I mean, Jesus has taught us to pray this way. We just... We just prayed the prayer that illustrates this, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the, the economy that Jesus establishes. And I'll tell you, this is a particularly difficult teaching for me. I, I, I am prone to unforgiveness. I, I am somebody who is just like this servant. And my wife can verify this. Many times over, she has extended forgiveness to me. And yet when I am wronged, my inclination by nature and by training is to remember every little bit of debt. To never forget it. And Jesus' words come home to me as they should come home to all of us. It says, there is real danger there. Now, we must be clear about what forgiveness is and what it is not. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. That's not what forgiveness means. The, the words that people often pull from in Jeremiah 31 about how God will forget your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west and all that, that, that is poetic imagery. There is nothing that you know and remember that God does not know and remember. 
if you think that you might hold information in your head that God doesn't, we should have a longer, different conversation. This is not about forgetting. And forgiveness is not about pretending either that something has not happened. Something serious has happened when sin has happened. Forgiveness is not about, in the moment, feeling like it's all good. And forgiveness is not about a relinquishment of justice. And I need to be very clear about this for for a moment. In the name of forgiveness, Christian people have concealed sin that has harmed others because they think that's what Jesus is teaching. And that is not right. Because it's very clear in this parable that God is and always will be a God of justice. And if someone has harmed or abused a child or an adult in the name of Jesus and in the name of forgiveness to conceal their sin, that is not something that Jesus approves of or teaches here. That is unchristian. It is wicked and evil. So our belief is that if something happens where there has been a crime committed against somebody, we can talk about forgiveness, but we are also going to talk about justice. We're going to call the police because that is who God has handed the sword to, to wield injustice. And if you have suffered at the hands of somebody else in the name of Jesus, I cannot tell you how sorry I am. And I am sorry that the pain of others may have been healed and concealed in the name of this teaching. Now, forgiveness is, as much as anything else, an act of the will. It is a willingness to say, I will not hold this debt over somebody's head. It is said with deep pain, oftentimes. It is said through gritted teeth. But it is an act of the will to continually say, as God has forgiven me, I will forgive them. As much as anything, forgiveness is a a thing you grow into rather than a thing you immediately experience. You may know or you may not know. I, I lived with my family in Cape Town, South Africa for a year. And in 2008, apartheid had been over for about 14 years. Not very long. The country was still marked and shaped by apartheid. And one of the things that South Africa did to deal with years and years and years of violence and oppression based on race was that they had these courts for reconciliation and truth-telling. They were publicly appointed, government-funded arenas for people to come in and confess, I have done violence, I have murdered, I have raped And in that, the belief was that God would bring healing and reconciliation. And so there's a man named Desmond Tutu that led those efforts. But that actually worked to some degree. And it doesn't fix everything. It doesn't erase all of the the hovels. It doesn't release all of the the arenas of of shacks and shanty towns or anything like that. that. There's no magic wand. But naming the sin, confessing, And asking forgiveness was a part of South Africa's process to heal and recover from apartheid. You may be dealing with things in your own life 
where you have been really and truly wronged. You have been really and truly hurt. And the Bible is not calling you, feel better. Flip a switch and feel better. That's not how this works. Because evil is is real and painful and destructive. What you and I as people of God are instead called to do is to find the cross. You and I are called to see ourselves at the foot of the king who has doled out extravagant mercy. And you and I are called to reflect on God's own character rather than what we feel, rather than what has been done, and rather than seeking our own vengeance. Because honestly, when we are, when we are hiding our sin and refusing to talk to one another, when we are running away from the conflict, when we are holding on to, when I am holding on to things that have been sent and done against me, even if I intend to do it in entirely passive ways, what I am trying to do is exert some sort of emotional vengeance on somebody. I want them to suffer. And I'll make them suffer by my silence, my subtle glares, my leaving the room. I want to have the power to be the one who is a victim, who has currency over anybody else in the situation. And forgiveness is setting that right aside, that strategy aside, and instead looking at the character of the king. The nature of forgiveness for Christian people is based on two things. It is based on what God has done in the past and what God will do in the future. And in the past, we can look to Jesus' death on the cross when God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that he might cancel against us the record of all wrongs, to disarm the powers and principalities. And in that act, we see a supreme act of generosity and kindness. But we are also called to look forward. Christian forgiveness is anchored in Christian hope. When we, what I can do when I, when I look at somebody who has really wronged me, and when I can follow, actually muster the ability to pray the way Jesus taught me to pray, where I can exercise my will to forgive them, where I can exercise the will to ask someone to forgive me, what we are doing collectively as a people and in the context of our relationships is to look forward to a day when God will remove from the world all trace of all wrong. And the God who is just and forever just will take even this little evil or this massive evil that has crashed upon me and he will take it and cast it into the pit of darkness and fire and judgment. So that the sin that creeps into all of our relationships and creeps into our heart, we will one day be free from that thing. And we are called in the moment to look forward to the future and say, I believe that the future is coming and it's coming soon. And that future is marked by the generosity of God, the victory of God's work in Jesus Christ and his life, his death and his resurrection. So I am in pain right now. I am wounded. I am a victim. I, I feel like I have the right to seek some vengeance, but instead... I will trust that the victory of God is secure and God himself will have vengeance on that kind of evil and destructiveness. 
We are a people, a forgiving people, because we have been forgiven. We are a forgiving people because that we trust that God will be victorious. We are a people who presently may be in pain, but we are presently consumed by hope. The teachings of Jesus, of course, call us to a high standard. That warning that Jesus gives is real. If you cannot forgive as he is forgiven, you are in trouble. But of course, if we are the kind of people who truly encounter the forgiveness of God himself, who see the crucified God, see the resurrected Jesus, then how can we be anything but a people who are forgiving and kind and generous with mercy? This calls us to a present hope built upon the, the, the past and the future. If you are here today and you know that you have fled from these conversations, maybe with people in this room, hear Jesus' teaching this morning. You, you are not allowed to run away. You're not allowed to run away from this conversation. And you may need help with it. And Jesus even mentions that. You may need help. But you're not allowed to run away from facing this monster that lurks in our midst. You may be somebody who needs to be forgiven. And you need to repent. And, and it is not enough as a Christian people, to just look to God and say, well, please forgive me. Christian community is built on an ethos where we go to one another as well and say, I've sinned against you, and I am sorry. That's why Paul's instructions about this table, which we are coming to shortly, says you should not come and eat from this table if you know that that thing is dividing between you and your brother or your sister. And if you today have been living in a pit of shame, the king of mercy is before you today. You may feel your billion-dollar debt now, today, more than you have in a long, long time. And what you need to know is this parable it's only a metaphor. They're incomplete. Metaphors break down. Because the king is there to forgive your debt more than one time. The king is there to speak to you a word of mercy because he has done everything that is necessary to forgive any debt you can ever throw in his face. And if you are living under the weight of shame and sin this morning, the cross of Jesus is here before us to perpetually tell us the truth of God's character. He is not afraid of your list or your debt, and your sin cannot impoverish his mercy. He has it in abundance and without bottom. And today you are invited to feast on it again, to be shaped by it, and to live again by his great word of life. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this hard and good word. 
And we pray, God, that in this season of Lent that we have together, that you will call to mind the ways that we have sinned against our brothers and sisters, the way we've sinned against you, and the way that we must come and ask for forgiveness to you and to one another. And we pray, God, that you would help us to, to see the places where we are harboring unforgiveness and resentment and how we must forgive others. And Father, I pray that all of that will be seen as an invitation to mercy and freedom. That we don't have to be a people who are quietly fractioned off by unspeakable sins. But we can instead be a people who are freed to be healed and reconciled to one another and to God. We ask God that you would help us to live out of the abundance of your mercy and care and love for us. We often, we often think ourselves equal to you, that our sin might somehow be able to overcome your mercy. And that is such arrogance that it is easy to hold on to. Lord, forgive us. Help us to see ourselves rightly before you, the great King of mercy. Thank you, Jesus. We trust that your, the power of your Holy Spirit will lead us into all comfort and all, into all life together. To the praise of your name. Amen.